The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O Taste and see that the Lord is good. Father God, what we need more than anything else in all the universe is to see you as you truly are. See your majesty, your power, your might. your glory on terrifying display, Father. To recognize that before you, we could not stand. That from you would be nothing but punishment and eternal wrath because of our sin, because of our rebellion. Because we have become too big in our own eyes. That what we need more than anything else is to see your perfect holiness. That by that we would see who we really are. And that then from that place, we would only then be ready to hear the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. That we would see in him that very same glory that same radiance, that same perfection, and our only hope that by his righteousness, by his atoning death, by his powerful resurrection, and by his reign at your right hand today, we may live. We may be blessed by you. We may have the hope of eternity. Father, we come together seeking that which we need most to see your glory in the face of your son, Jesus Christ. Would you reveal that to us now? For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. So my goal this morning is very straightforward. It is to help you see the picture of true spiritual worship that God reveals to us here in the 14th chapter of Mark's gospel. To make this picture as vivid as possible, God sandwiches this picture in the middle of a different, a much darker image. You see, in order to present to us this sharp and unmistakable contrast, Jesus holds before us two people, two images, two pictures. In one, we see perhaps the most brilliant the most beautiful picture of true, Christ-exalting, self-forgetting worship in all of Scripture. And in the other, we see the darkest, the most grotesque, the most hollow, self-focused, false discipleship the world has ever seen. Now, both of these people were counted as followers of Jesus Christ. In the eyes of all those that knew him, Both of these people must surely be headed to inherit the kingdom of God. By almost every earthly standard, both of these people were sincere in their desire to follow Jesus Christ and bow to him as Lord. But dear friends, the end of these stories could not be any more different. This woman, she finds true and lasting joy, real satisfaction, unending pleasures at the feet of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The other, 
finds nothing but shame and sorrow and regret. In the end, he kills himself. Having utterly betrayed this one to whom he once swore fealty. That's my goal this morning, to hold these pictures before you. So I've got a lot to say in little time, so I ask you to stand to your feet, please. We return to Mark's gospel. This is the 14th chapter. We begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? What she has done is a beautiful thing for me. For you will, not, you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we don't have it in ourselves. So we ask you to do what only you can do. Open our eyes, help us see, help us trust, help us believe. Help us to be real with ourselves about who we are. Help us to fall on our knees before you. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as you'll recall, we are just concluding a six-week study of the Olivet Discourse. That was Jesus' extremely difficult teaching with regards to the destruction of the temple there in Jerusalem, the time of his return, and the end of the age. Now as best I can tell that entire chapter, all of Mark 13, reaching all the way back to the 11th chapter, verse 20 there, is a singular day. As best I can tell, all of that took place on Tuesday, the 11th day of Nisan. But now we read in this morning's text, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, God willing, we will talk about this in much greater detail in the weeks to come. But for now, let me simply say this. As most of you know, Passover is one of three feasts where all Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem and to present themselves before God. Passover immediately flows into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These feasts, these celebrations, they were meant to be a reminder to God's people of how very faithful he had been in setting them free from slavery in Egypt and then providing for their every last need out there in the wilderness. Passover in particular focuses on the reality that as God sent his angel to bring judgment upon sin and sinners, taking the life of every firstborn in all of Egypt, even including the animals, that he was willing to accept the life of an innocent substitute, a perfect lamb, that if they would trust in the promises of God, take that blood and cover it, cover their door with it, that under the covering of that blood, Israel would be spared. So, so closely tied together are these, the feast of Passover and of unleavened bread, that very often they're referred to as just one singular thing, the Passover. That's why in Mark's parallel we find this, Luke 22, or excuse me, Luke's parallel, Luke 22, 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Now the Passover began in earnest on the 14th day of Nisan. This was Friday in the year that Jesus was crucified. And so when Mark says, it is now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Jesus says in Matthew 26, the parallel there, Matthew 26 too, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming. We've got to determine what does this mean because Jewish people don't count time exactly the same way that we do. Now I'm not going to go deeply into this. I will just tell you that as best I can tell, this means that what takes place this morning at the beginning of this text, the stage that is set here is Wednesday, the 12th day of Nisan, the day after everything that we have just been studying, which I believe was a Tuesday. 
So it says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, as I said, what we find here in Mark 14 is a sandwich of sorts. Now, Mark does this from time to time. You may recall back in chapter 11, Mark presented to us a sandwich. What we read there is in verses 11 through 14, Jesus curses the fig tree. Then in the middle, in verses 15 to 19, he cleanses the temple. Then he comes back to verse 20 and 25, and he explains to us what the cursing of the fig tree was all about. In fact, what the cursing of the fig tree was about was what he had done with the cleansing of the temple. It was a picture of God's judgment upon apostate Israel, the coming destruction on Jerusalem and that very temple. And so you see the way that the picture is rounded out. You see the way he adds a sharpness, a focus to the picture by sandwiching two things around each other. That's the way he drives home the point. So what we see in this morning's text, again, is a sandwich of sorts. The top piece of bread, if you will, is verses one to two. That's which, that which we have just read. The bottom piece of the bread is verses 10 through 11. Now, so closely tied together are these that these two pericopes, these two snapshots, they're taken together as one in Luke's gospel. In Luke 22, we read about these two pieces spoken of as one event because they are. They're so closely tied together as one. But yet right here in the middle, in Mark 14 and in Matthew 26, the parallel, you'll find this piece inserted in the middle. That's verse 3 through 9. Now, this isn't random. This isn't incidental. Of course, the anointing at Bethany it is, tied very, it is tied very closely to Jesus' betrayal, to his arrest, to his murder. And again, I tell you that the purpose behind this was almost poetic. It is in order to bring crystal clear focus, in order to sharpen the contrast between these two people, in order to sharpen the contrast between the beauty of this one event and the horror, the darkness, the sin, the evil in this other. So the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So this is not news to us. Mark has been recording Jesus saying this all throughout his scriptures. Mark has been recording over and over again the hatred that the religious leadership had for Jesus. We read about it in Mark 3, 6, that the Pharisees and the Herodians, they plotted how to destroy Jesus. Mark eleven eighteen, we read the chief priests and the scribes, they sought to destroy Jesus. In Mark 12, 12, we read that the Sanhedrin, they had hoped to destroy Jesus. The religious leadership in Israel, they had a deep and abiding hatred for Jesus. They couldn't answer his questions. They couldn't trip him up in his own words. And so they had to find a way to destroy him. By whatever means necessary, they had to take him out of the picture. He was too much a threat to their authority, to their power, to this religious system that they were building upon their own name. But they feared the crowd. Now Jerusalem would have been hopped full of people on this day. This entire week, the Passover feast, there would have been a large crowd, certainly a large crowd following Jesus everywhere he went. And so they knew that they could not do it on this week. They could not arrest him. They could not kill him. Frankly, any time other than Passover would have been better. Any time other than this week would have worked fine for them. Now we'll unpack just how successful they were in the weeks to come. But you'll remember that Jesus has been telling his disciples over and over again, we head to Jerusalem that I may be arrested, be beaten, killed, and raise again. Been telling them over and over again that this is the week. So what do you think? Will they be able to avoid it? Do you think they'll be successful in making sure that they don't have to take his life at this time? Or would Jesus force their hand? That's the question before us. Who is really sovereign over this? The most evil act in the history of the world. Are these men in control? Or is it God? Is it God that is orchestrating this entire drama that's unfolding before us? But that's for next week. This man's plans, the betrayal of Judas, that's for next, next week. This week, our eyes are drawn right here to Bethany, to this section in the middle. Verse 3 says, and while he was in Bethany. Now you'll remember that Bethany is a small town on the east side of the Mount of Olives, about two miles walk away from the city of Jerusalem. You'll remember that this served as Jesus' home base all throughout this week, as was his pattern. When nighttime came, before they closed the city gates, Jesus would retire to the east, back up over the mount into Bethany, where he'd stay at the home of his dear friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. Now you'll notice that we aren't given any time stamp here. 
In verse 1, we're told that it is two days before the Passover. I told you as best I can tell, that means that it is Wednesday, that that is the day when these chief priests and scribes have determined Jesus must die, and they begin seeking an opportunity to do that away from the crowd, any time other than at this moment. But we're not given a time stamp here. So could this still be Wednesday? Could the events that we read here with the anointing of Jesus in Bethany, could this still be a Wednesday? Well, I, I don't think that it is. And I would remind you that there's no rule saying that the Gospels or any other form of writing for that matter must be presented in purely chronological order. That oftentimes what you will find when you sit down with a good harmony of the Gospels and you compare side by side the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you'll find them in very different orders. It's not because these men are mistaken. It's not because they're confused and couldn't get their stories straight. That can't be the case because the word is from God and God does not err. Every last word that we read is from him and it is perfect. But oftentimes, in order to drive home the point, in order to make the picture as clear as possible, God will not present to us these stories in chronological but thematic order. He'll bring stories together in order to make the point. These stories did happen. They happened in a specific order. There is a right order to these things, but they're not presented in purely chronological form. And that would seem to be what's happening this morning. In order to make the point, in order to hold before us that contrast that I talked to you about earlier, it seems to me that both Matthew and Mark talk to us about the events of Bethany, that the events of that night, in order to, to bring down upon us the full weight, this isn't a precise ordering of events, in order to bring down upon us the full weight of that night, they insert it right here. And if I'm right, if I'm right about this, then what we find in Mark 14 is paralleled not just in Matthew 26, but also in John 12. So I'd ask you to go ahead and flip there. If you can, just go ahead and flip to John 12 and put your finger there because we might jump back and forth just a little bit this morning, not too much. What you'll find there in John 12 is that this was right after Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. Yet again, he's inflamed the anger of the religious establishment and they've determined yet again that they were going to kill Jesus. And so what we read here, this event in John 12, it's also in Bethany. It's also a dinner, and it has a striking similarity to the events we read in this morning's text. Now, it's okay if you see things differently. You're used to that by now. Each man must have some determination. What do you understand the word to be saying here? We must strive to understand as best we can. But frankly, it's not critical for you to see this picture, that I'm right with regards to the ordering of this thing. But if I am right, and I'm, and I'm strongly convinced that I am, if I am right, then the events that we read right here in the middle of this sandwich that Mark presents to us, they actually took place on Saturday night. Again, after the resurrection of uh, Lazarus, again, after the crowd had determined that they must take his life yet again. So what happens here is that Mark and Matthew, they're presenting a bit of a flashback. In the middle of the darkness of the betrayal, the religious establishment seeking to arrest and kill Jesus, in the middle of all that darkness, he presents this jewel, this diamond, this beautiful picture that happened some four nights ago. So back in Mark's gospel, verse three. And while he was in Bethany, in the house of Simon, the leper, he was reclining at table. So Jesus was at the house of a leper for dinner. This is no shock to us. Jesus was always with the outcasts. He was always with the irreligious. He was always with the unclean. He was always with the outsiders. This is no, no, there's no shock to us to find Jesus here for a dinner date. But what we do find is that there's other people there. And so we have to believe that perhaps this man is no longer leprous. Perhaps he has no longer come down with leprosy. Perhaps he's been healed. This has led many people to believe that perhaps Jesus has healed this man. That wouldn't be crazy to think about, would it? We know that Jesus healed entire towns full of sick people. And perhaps had he healed this man called Simon who had once had leprosy? This man who had once been an absolute outcast? Have to imagine, though, again, that this man was healed. Otherwise, people wouldn't have come to his dinner date lest they become unclean or maybe even catch this disease themselves. But this was a special occasion. We read that Jesus is reclining. You don't recline for fast food. You eat fast food at the kitchen bar before you run out the door to soccer. This was a reclined meal. This was a slow meal. This was a special occasion. And again, if my understanding is correct, and, and frankly, this entire sermon is going to get very tedious if I have to make this disclaimer at every single point. So allow me to say it once and for all. I may be wrong about the chronology of this. I don't think I am. I feel quite confident. I believe that you will feel confident as you put these texts side by side. But if I am right about what he is saying here, again, this is a flashback to Saturday. And when we look back to John's gospel, John chapter 12, we see the picture unfolding a little bit more. He pulls back the curtain a bit and shows us a little bit more about this dinner. What we read there in John 12, beginning in verse 1. 
six days before the Passover. Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Again, every night, Jesus retired to Bethany. He went to the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. This is quite the guest list, isn't it? You've got this man called Simon the leper. Perhaps in an encounter with Jesus Christ, he has been supernaturally healed, miraculously healed, an outcast. Could not even go into the temple for worship. People couldn't come around him. Everywhere he went, he had to proclaim all around, unclean, unclean, lest they get too close and they themselves become unclean. And yet he has been healed. In an instant, in a contact with Jesus Christ, he has been made whole. And now again I say, I know that Jesus has healed entire towns full of people. There are possibly thousands of people in and around this region that have been healed by Jesus. Certainly in the north, all kinds of people that have been healed by Jesus. But people never get tired of hearing about the miraculous works of Jesus Christ. People would have always been interested to hear about the life transformation that happened in this man because of Jesus. And so perhaps that's what's happening. Perhaps Simon is here and he's telling his story. My life was miserable. I was better off dead. I hated my life and I had no hope in all the world. And then I met him. And then I met him and everything changed. But then you've also got Lazarus reclining there too. He wasn't almost dead. He was dead. Really dead. Stinky dead. And yet with a voice, a cry, a call from Jesus Christ, he came alive. Lazarus, come out. Theologians of old have wondered if Jesus didn't have to say Lazarus' name because if he merely said, come out, all the dead people in all of Israel would have got up. He needed to identify, no, you, Lazarus, come out. Who wouldn't want to hear that story? Who wouldn't want to find out what it means to once be dead and now be alive at the hands of Jesus Christ? So you've got Lazarus there, and surely everyone wanted to hear his story. In fact, we read that all of Judea was wanting to come and hear the story of Lazarus, the once dead man, who is now alive because of Jesus. So again, unless we've got two identical parties in the same town, on the same week, with the same anointing, with the same oil, worth the same value, you've got Simon the once leper and Lazarus reclining at table. Can you even imagine? Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the wonder? Can you imagine the anticipation in the air? What's going to happen on this night? Can you imagine the gratitude? How do you thank a man that has healed you of leprosy? What about a man that's raised you from the dead? What do you have, give a man that has everything? What do you give a man who has given you everything? Well, they're giving him this feast. And we read that Martha, Lazarus' sister, that she is serving. This means that she almost surely lives there. But then in Mark's gospel, we read that this is the house of Simon. So perhaps is Simon and Lazarus and Mary and Martha, are they all related in some way? We don't know. We don't have to know. God doesn't want us to know. But it seems perhaps that that's likely. So whoever Simon the leper is, clearly though, it's the anticipation of Mark that the first century church would have known who he was. And in his house for this special dinner, this meaningful event, he reclines along with Lazarus and others. But there's only one guest of honor, and that is Jesus. This feast is all about him. This party is thrown in his honor. Of course it is. Who else would you come to celebrate? Look at all that he's done. Even just in this little town, look at all that Jesus has done. Who else would you throw the party for? Who else would you give the best spot for? Who else would be the focus of the entire night other than Jesus? It's a celebration of Jesus. Now, everybody showed up to eat. Everybody showed up to be with their friends. Some people showed up to hear the story of Simon. Some people may have showed up to hear about Lazarus, the once dead man, but they weren't gathering for all of that. That wasn't the point. The point was Jesus. He was the focus of the whole night. It was all about him. This whole setup was all about him. It's going to become more clear than ever before as we move through. And a woman came with an alabaster flask, a flask full of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. So again, John's gospel tells us that this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. She had a pound of this expensive ointment. Now a Roman pound is about 12 ounces. That's a big flask. That's not a little bitty perfume bottle like many of us are used to buying, particularly when you're buying something that's expensive. The container itself was made of alabaster. It's oftentimes a, a soft stone, maybe at times even translucent. This, the flask in and of itself would have had value. 
but it's filled with nearly a pound of pure nard, very costly ointment. So this is the scene. You've got this special dinner. Jesus is the guest of honor. Everyone is there for him. Mary excuses herself. Martha is busy serving because that's what Martha does. But Mary, she slips away, and then she comes out with this flask full of expensive ointment. This expensive ointment that's in a fairly fragile flask. And we're, we read in verse 5 that this ointment, it's worth some 300 denarii. That's a year's wage. You recall that a, a denarius is one day's wage for an average laborer. So if you work six days a week for 52 weeks a year, that gets you to almost 300 denarii. That's what this flask was worth. What an average man would have earned in one year, this woman now carries in her hand. Now, women, they couldn't really work and earn something like this back then. So was this an inheritance? Had Mary once been married and her husband died and left something to her? Or was she just rich? Was the entire family just rich and they had tons of these flasks sitting around in the back? We don't know. Apparently, we don't need to know. But here comes Mary, and surely everyone's looking at her. She's walking around with something in her hand of more value than anything you and I will ever own with the possible exception of our house or maybe if you drive a really, really nice truck. She's got a thing in her hand that's worth a fortune, a real fortune, and she's carrying it out. What could she possibly be doing with this? What's the purpose to her bringing it out? So the woman comes out with an alabaster flask, flask full of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and she poured it over his head. She breaks the flask. Why? Because she won't be needing it anymore. She's going to use it all. Every last drop. Every ounce of this expensive ointment. She wasn't going to just pour a bit on Jesus and say the rest for herself. That would have been prudent. That would have been practical. But this wasn't the time for pragmatism. This was no moment for half measures. What Mary sought to do in this moment was an extreme show of affection. Her goal in this moment was an utter extravagance. She broke the flask because she wouldn't be holding back any for herself. She broke the flask because she was going to be giving it all to Jesus Christ. Dear friends, please tell me that you see this. Please tell me that you see this picture. I can almost smell the ointment in the air. John tells us in his gospel, John 12, 12, 2, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There was so much of it. John also tells us that Mary takes down her hair. That's a woman's glory, her hair. That's what 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen tells us. This woman takes down her hair and she's using it to rub the oil into Jesus' feet. She pours it on his head. It's almost like a bath. There's so much of it. The room is filled with the fragrance. She gets down on her knees and she takes down her hair and she's using her hair to rub this ointment into his feet. The woman takes her glory and she rubs Jesus' feet because this meal was not about Mary. This meal was not about her glory. This meal was not about Lazarus. This meal was not about Simon. This meal was not about the food. This meal was about Jesus. She pours it over his head. She doesn't dab it. She doesn't save some back. She takes her hair and she rubs his feet. She's on the floor. This is a special dinner. This is a special occasion. People are reclining. The food was surely good. There was excitement in the air. And Mary's on the ground rubbing his, hair, his feet with her hair. And the whole room is filled with the fragrance. Everybody's participating in this. They can't just see what's happening. They can smell it. What's the smell of worship? You notice she didn't wait till she and Jesus were alone to do this. You notice she didn't wait until everybody else had left and it was just a special crowd. She didn't serve, reserve this special moment for just her family. She wanted to include as many people as possible in this. Her joy in this act was increased by the inclusion of all these other people. She wanted them to see. She wanted them to smell. She wanted them to participate. She wanted them to join her in her joy. She wanted them to be a part of this extravagance. She wanted them to be a part of this Christ-exalting worship right here. Don't you see? This is worship. This is worship. They gathered for him. This was all about Jesus. It wasn't about the food. It wasn't about the leper. It wasn't about the raised man. It wasn't even about Mary. It wasn't even about the ointment. Mary's on her face before the Lord. Nobody's looking at her in this moment. They're all staring at him because it's all about him. It's all about him. 
It wasn't about the size of the gift. Please don't make it about the size of the gift. If you make it about the size of the gift, you will always be judging performances. It wasn't about the size of a gift. Jesus had praised this widow woman, the widow woman that went into the treasury, and she had but two small copper coins making a penny, 164th of a denarius. And he said that she had given the most. She had given the most because she gave everything that she had. Now here's this woman, and she's giving away a literal fortune. They had done the same. They had both given away the same because it came from the same heart of unbridled love. This was radical. This was reckless. And yet you've got to see what they're saying. The statement that they're making in this. There's an old adage in economics that goes like this. Something is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. What is Jesus worth? How about everything? Absolutely everything. This is worship. This woman is making it clear to everyone, Jesus is worth more than this. Anything that I can get my hands on, anything that I can give my life to accumulating, I turn and I give it back to him because he's worth more. He's worth more than all of this. He's worth more than my time, more than my family, more than my name, more than my reputation, more than this fortune. He's worth more than this, and this is worship because true worship delights in Jesus Christ. True worship finds him as the goal. He is the goal. He is the focus. He is the purpose of all true worship and a heart that finds their joy, their satisfaction in him. They just want to find expressions to that. What can I give to him? What can I hand to him? What can I let loose of to give expression to the joy that I find in him, to the satisfaction, to the hope that I find in him? Because Mary saw what other people did not. Mary saw the glory of Christ. To so many others, he looked just like an ordinary man. Because he came clothed in human flesh, they saw nothing but a man because they were blind and they were hardened. All throughout Mark's gospel, we read about this. Men that came to Jesus Christ and they saw nothing but a man. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4. in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So many men, they come to Jesus Christ and they see him nothing but a means to an end, not the ends himself. What can you do for me? The only value in you, Jesus Christ, is what you can give me. The only value in coming to you is what you can do for me, and then I'm always going to be measured because the goal is always about what do I get back. And so because of that, I'm always going to be measured in what I give to him. I'm always going to be measured in my worship because the point is accumulating my stuff. And if I give away at all, then I have nothing. But this wasn't the heart of Mary. This wasn't the case with Mary because she had seen. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let the light shine out of the darkness has shown in her heart to give her the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because that's the only way this happens. Listen, Jesus had healed other people. Jesus had even raised other dead men. Jesus had been to other parties much like this, but Mary saw more. Mary saw more by the supernatural work of God. He had given her eyes to see, and in the face of Jesus Christ, she saw the glory of God. She knew this wasn't just a man. She knew who he was. She knew the one that was reclining at her table, and she had no choice but to respond like this, like a compulsion. She couldn't help herself. She had to respond just like this. She was literally made for this moment. Do you understand what we're reading this morning? You are literally witnessing a woman fulfilling the very reason for her existence. Whatever Mary was, whatever she had accomplished in her entire life, it was for this, for this singular moment to exalt Jesus Christ within the seeing of all those that were in that place. What is the chief end of man? Another way to ask that question, why do you exist? Why are you here? What is the purpose for your existence? Everything is made for a purpose. You don't make stuff just to make it. Even if you make something just to look at it, there's a purpose in everything that is created, in everything that is, and the creator is the one that gets to determine the purpose. The one who has made the thing gets to determine this is the reason for which I have made it. What is the chief end of man? Not just of Mary, not just of men in the Bible, of every single man that has ever lived. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Mary saw this. Mary knew this. Her entire life had been building towards this. This was the ultimate reason for her existence, to glorify God and 
to enjoy him forever. Mary had seen. God had given her eyes to see, and she beheld the glory of God in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. She knew who this was that reclined at her table, and she knew that her very purpose in life was to express that, to reflect his glory to the world around her. And in doing this, she found her ultimate joy. She found true joy in expressing the glory that had always been Christ to all those within hearing. You remember, this is the same Mary that sat at the feet of Jesus at another party. That Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus while her sister Martha was busy serving. Of course, Martha was quite frustrated with this, and she came to Jesus and said, Jesus, aren't you upset that Mary just sits here while I'm busy about all this work? While I'm busy doing all these things to serve you and the other guests? But what Jesus says was that she had chosen that which was best, that which would never be taken away. So clearly Mary had heard the promises of Jesus Christ and she believed. I don't know if she was there on that day, but clearly as one of the disciples, she would have heard what Jesus said in John 6, 35, where he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Come to me and be satisfied. That's what he's saying. He's using hunger and thirst as a picture for true satisfaction. Come to me, and you'll never experience anything other than satisfaction all the rest of your days. Come to me and be satisfied for once in your life. We can look back in the Old Testament and see the same theme. In Psalm 1611, in your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The fullness of joy, unending pleasures at the right hand in the presence of God. Mary believed these promises, and she had tasted them for herself. She had experienced for herself. Mary knew where true pleasures were found, at the feet of Jesus Christ. And so she simply gave her life to the pursuit of that as she sat at the feet of Jesus Christ, as she declared to everyone in that place, he's worth more. Don't you see then how he is glorified? I'm so thankful for men like John Piper and Jonathan Edwards that have unfolded this truth for me. But dear friends, they didn't create it. They just discovered what Mary knew. They looked in the scripture and they realized this woman knew. Face to face with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, even as he was veiled in human flesh, she had eyes to see the glory that was his. She saw him as more valuable than anything else in all the world, so she just pursued after her joy to his glory. That that's worship. That Mary was showing Martha, the other dinner guest, and every single one of us, he's worth more. I would rather be nowhere else in all the earth than right here at his feet. I count this moment on my face rubbing his feet with my hair is more glorious than anything else this world can offer. I would rather be right here than anywhere else. You see how he's glorified in this, surely, don't you? As you come to him, you're truly satisfied. You declare that satisfaction to the Lord. You think about a man that falls in love with a woman. He abandons all else. His buddies can't find him anymore. His hobbies go by the wayside. He works merely as a means to give her things, to provide for her. He packs up and moves across the country just to be with her. And maybe his buddies don't get it. Maybe his buddies don't see what's all that hot about this girl. But they say, surely he sees something that we don't. There must be something about this woman that we don't know, that we haven't experienced, that we haven't seen. He knows something that we don't, and she gets glorified. She gets magnified. They see the worth that this woman has in the eyes of this man. This is it. Mary takes this oil. They know what the value of this oil is. We're not having to guess. They tell us explicitly, a year's wages. This is a fortune, a true fortune. She takes this thing and she declares before all of them, he's worth more than this. He's worth more than a year's wage. She's simply trading up. She's saying, I've got this thing and I've got the opportunity to trade it for something more. For once in our life, I'm trading up. That's all it is. It's a pursuit of joy. It's a pursuit of that which is more. It's a pursuit of that which is better. It's saying, I've got some stuff, and it's all going to burn up. It's worthless in the end, but he's worth everything. So she just traded up. And so she's satisfied, and Jesus is glorified. You see the picture? You see how your joy and his glory are perfectly aligned? When the world looks at you and they say, what does he know that I don't know? What does he see in Jesus that I don't see? Why would he hold Jesus up like this and forsake everything else? Men devote their whole lives to accumulating a wealth like this, a fortune like this, and he breaks the bottle and pours it over his head. You see the glory that comes from him in this. You see the way that he is magnified and exalted before men in this, and everyone in the room gets blessed. Everyone in the room gets blessed because they get to participate in this thing. 
They get to witness this thing. Everybody that thinks rightly, they're not looking and going, wow, look at Mary. Isn't she glorious? They go, look at Jesus. He's worth that. That's worship. That's worship. And I have to wonder if she planned this. Did she, did, she, did she plan to do this on this night? Or was this just purely spontaneous? Because what you will find very often, dear friends, is when you find true delight in something, you will find this compulsion within yourself to give expression to the joy that you find in it. Almost like a burning down in your, in your bones. You, you, you just have to express it. And that expression, it heightens your joy. You go to a football game and something exciting happens and everybody stands up and cheers and you're more happy in the cheering than you would have been just sitting on your butt. Whenever I get in bed in the afternoons on a Sunday, I get, I get like a two-hour window on Sundays whenever the next Sunday isn't on the horizon and, and I put my phone down and I'll, I'll lay down in my bed and just, that's it, that's, that's my moment. And I've got this thing I do when I lay down in my bed and the girls are all still in the living room and I make this groaning sound. And I don't know why I do it, but it, I just want to let them know how much I love being in that bed. And eventually they'll go, Dad, I get it. We get it. Or, or one of my girls will go, are you, you having fun in there? But I just let I'm just, ah. Oh. Yes, my joy is increased as I let you know how much I enjoy this. Like a man that looks into his precious baby girl's eyes for the very first time. And he can't help it. He says, look at her. She's perfect. She's gorgeous. I love you. That baby doesn't understand what he's saying. He's not trying to curry favor with her. He's not trying to earn honor for himself with everybody that's around him. But he can't help it. He wants you to be included in his joy. Look at her. She's perfect. It heightens his joy. His satisfaction coming to fruition before everybody that's around him. He wants you to be included in this thing that I see. Don't you see? I can't hold this back. It's like a burning within my bones. If I try to keep it down, it's not going to work. I've got to express to you, don't you see who he is? Don't you see what he's worth? Don't you see the value that I find in him? I don't know if this was just an instantaneous moment or what it was, but she was making clear to everybody in this room, he is precious to me. And dear friends, I, I don't want to belabor this point. I know that I've wandered away from the text, but I'm imploring you to see this this morning, that this is worship, that you glorify Jesus Christ, as you give expression to the joy that you find in him, as you hold his glory up on display for the rest of the world, that this is true worship. It's not about song services. It's not about styles. It's not about places. It's not about preferences. Dear friends, if you sat at the feet of Jesus Christ and have you truly been satisfied, if you've been given eyes to see who Jesus is, if you sat at his feet and if you experienced true and lasting joy, if that's the case, then quit holding back. Quit holding back for the sake of his glory, for your enjoyment, to bless all of us. Quit holding back. Give expression to this. Praise him. I'm not just talking about here within this room. Yes, it does happen within this room, but it can't be just in this room. You see, and here there's this tricky thing that happens because we sing these songs and there's a certain power, there's a certain common grace about music that elicits emotion. And if we're not careful, we can mistake raw emotion for spirituality. We can mistake raw emotion for true worship. That's the tricky thing about musical worship because the instrument starts coming in and the music gets strong and, and the voice comes out powerfully and you're wailing out yourself and you're singing true praises to the living God. But if you're not careful, you're just swept up in the music. You're just swept up in the motions. You're not worshiping God. You're worshiping the music. You're not worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. That's why in so many churches what you'll find is that they sing these Christ-exalting songs. The whole focus of all their music worship is God and nothing else. And then the preacher gets up and he talks all about you. Because when I don't have music to accompany me, you don't have so much of a taste for God anymore. I have to wonder how many of these sermons that men sit under week in and week out, if they were to put these things to music and try to sing them as a praise song, the church would have gone, oh, that sounds like country and pop. 
If we're not careful, just the music can sweep us away. And that music is meant to elevate our worship. It's meant to lift you up to the very gates of heaven. But only when Jesus Christ is the focus. So it can't just be the musical worship. It's got to be as you sit under the word. As you sit at the feet of Jesus Christ. As you suffer through life. As you walk through the valleys. As you endure all at the feet of Jesus Christ. Declaring to the whole world, he's worth more. I count all this as joy because everything you strip away is one more thing I don't have to worry about. I lay it at his feet because all I want is more of him. You're exalting him in real life. Don't just exalt him in the music. Don't just exalt him when you sing. Don't just exalt him when you rock out in your car. Exalt him in those dark hours. Exalt him in your cubicle. Exalt him with your children. Exalt him with your checkbook. Exalt him with your quiet time. Exalt him at the ball field. Exalt him everywhere. That's true worship. And dear friends, if you have tasted this, if you have experienced this, then I'm pleading with you this morning, break the bottle. Don't be practical. Don't be prudent. Don't hold something back. Break the bottle. Pour it all out. Don't hold anything back for yourself. Don't worry about tomorrow. You break the bottle. You say, I won't be needing that anymore because I'm giving it all to you. That's the picture of true worship. I'm giving you permission to chase hard after your own joy. I'm giving you permission to chase hard after that which is best. I look to my daughters. Listen, girls, I love you more than anything in the whole world, but I'm telling you, I love Jesus more. If you don't remember anything else about me as your father, I pray to God that you look at me and you see a man that loves God more than anything else. I pray that you recognize that I will give up everything I know because I want to save your life because I want to save your soul, but you must know that I count him as more. I love you more than I could have ever imagined loving anyone on this planet. I will literally die for you, but he's worth more, and he's got to be more to you. He's got to be more to you, more than your mom and dad, more than your friendships, more than your reputation, more than your money, more than your career, more than sex or drugs or rock and roll, more than anything this world has to offer. He's got to be more. And you, you've got to understand that the world's not going to see it that way. That even many within the church, they're not going to see it that way. They're going to be very uncomfortable. Even in this moment, perhaps some of you are very uncomfortable. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. They were indignant. They were furious. This wasn't just the crowd. Matthew tells us explicitly this was the disciples. The disciples. Those who claimed to love and follow Jesus Christ. They were indignant at this woman's waste. They believed she had wasted this gift on him. And so they scolded her. Please don't act like this is unheard of, church. Radical. Christ-centered, self-forgetting worship will always make men uncomfortable. Always. I need you to know I get so many suggestions. Well-meaning people, they give me so many suggestions. They think perhaps we're too narrow in our focus in this place. They think we're too singular. We're too myopic in the way we view corporate worship and these people mean well. But dear friends, you've got to understand that no, we don't come in here to be practical. We don't come in here to be pragmatic. We come in here to exalt the God of the universe. We come in here to glorify his name. And you must know that when you go all in for Jesus Christ like this, when you break the bottle, you go all in for him like this, even many within the church, they're going to get real uncomfortable real quick. They're going to want to throw the brakes on your life. They're going to want to throw the brakes on your worship. Whenever you abandon that which seems reasonable to the rest of the world, you're going to find yourself sitting real lonely, sitting all alone at the feet of Jesus Christ. But you cannot set your worship to the approval of men. Now, the particular objection to these men was that this ointment could have been sold for 300 denarii and the money then given to the poor. Now, again, I say John pulls back the veil a little bit and he reveals to us that this is actually Judas that says this because Judas is a thief. 
Judas was the treasurer for the group and his desire was that they would collect that money into the treasury and he would steal some for himself. Dear friends, you've got to know that people that don't find worship to be this, chasing after your joy to the exaltation, the glorification, the honor of God of the universe, that don't find radical worship to be the very purpose for your existence, they will always find ways to try and accomplish God's work in their own abilities. They will always be measured in everything that they do. They will oftentimes try to go around Jesus Christ and his commandments in order to capture that which is theirs, and they will always be holding something back for themselves. There will always be some self-focus in their worship. Even their most pious of deeds, even their most generous of deeds, there will always be some measure of self-focus in that. But you must see this. You've got this woman on the floor. You see the beauty of her worship as she's putting the value of Jesus on full display for everyone that's there and surely she thought that everybody else in the room was going to be just as excited as she was surely she thought every woman in that place was going to take their hair down and start rubbing his feet every man was going to start singing songs of praise and falling on their face before the one that was in their presence but she was shocked to find that they saw this as nothing but a waste they scolded this woman can you even imagine how she felt ashamed embarrassed but I think most of all confused. I picture her looking around him going, don't you know who this is? Don't you see what he's worth? You've seen the same things I've seen. You've sat under the same sermons that I've sat under. You've slept with him. You've ate with him. You've walked with him. You've lived with him. You've seen the same things I've seen. How don't you get it? I have to imagine she laid her head down at night going, I don't get it. I've seen it and I can't unsee it. How don't they see it? They didn't see it. They scolded her. And I believe they thought Jesus was going to agree. I believe they thought Jesus was going to look at her and go, yeah, Mary, that was a bit much. A little dab would have been enough. You know, just a little penance to show that you really do think of me. Verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? What she has done is a beautiful thing to me. Dear friends, to have Jesus Christ as your defender. Exodus 14, 14 says, you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. He looks around at the others and he says, you shut your mouth. That's my paraphrase. You shut your mouth. Do not seek to rob this woman of her joy. Do not seek to rob me of my glory. What this woman has done is good, child. What you have done is beautiful because I am worth it. Who else could say such a thing but God? I'm worth it. I'm worth more. And what you've done is beautiful, so you shut your mouth. You don't try to come between her and me. You don't shame her and her excess. You don't tell her to rein in her desire to exalt me before you. You get on your knees before me and bow, or you shut your mouth. He defends this woman. Verse 7. You'll always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Jesus isn't against doing good for the poor. We know this. The disciples know this. Everybody knows this. He has great compassion for the poor and the fatherless. What did he say to the rich young man? You must sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But dear friends, you must see that it is capable to feed, it's possible to feed the poor. It's possible to care for the homeless and completely miss the entire point. Again, I say the point is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's to give yourself completely to him. And it's only when you seek this, only when you chase after this, enjoying God and glorifying him in all that you do, it's only from that place that you can feed the poor, that you can care for the orphan in a way that truly satisfies your soul and glorifies the God of the universe. And Jesus makes reference here to Deuteronomy 15, 11, For you will always have the poor with you. There will always be poor people. Don't think you're going to eradicate poverty. Don't think you're going to do away with poor people. As long as you live until I come back, there will always be the poor. So don't make ending poverty your goal. That's not the goal of the church. That's not the goal in your creation. You will always have poor people. It's all about me. So focus on me. Glorify me. Give your everything to me. And you must see how this frees you up. As you go all in for the sake of Jesus Christ, then when God brings you some poor person, when he puts one single orphan in your home, you don't have to hold back. 
You don't have to be practical. You don't have to be measured. You don't have to be prudent. You aren't rationing out what you have because you're going to serve all the poor and all the orphans and all the earth. He's freed you up. So that now the singular poor person sitting in front of you, you can pour the full resources of the kingdom right at their feet. You can show them how glorious God is. The rest of the world, they're going to tell you you're doing it wrong. They're going to look at you and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? There's 800 million starving children. You're going all in on this one. Yes, because God brought me this one. Because God brought me this one. And to show you and to show him and show the world how glorious he is, everything I have, I pour into this one. He's got more. He's got more. There's more poor people. Well, there's no end in my God's provision. And so I'm going to pour everything I have into this one and then wait for the next. Don't you see how this frees you up? Don't you see how this radically changes your service? It's not that Jesus doesn't love the poor. He says, I'm going to show you how to really love the poor. You don't hold anything back. Verse 7, for you'll always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. I can't help but wonder if Jesus shot a glance at Judas at that moment. They won't always have me. Will they, Judas? This opportunity to sit at my feet, this opportunity to touch my hands, this opportunity to see me face to face, you won't always have this. This will come to an end. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now this statement is not entirely clear to me. I, I do not know whether Mary actually knew that that was what she was doing. Jesus had been very clear about why they were there in Jerusalem. So did she know that's what she was doing? We're not giving any, any indication of this, that she was foreshadowing his burial, that she was looking forward to that. That's certainly a possibility. But Jesus makes clear what is happening. That Mary, driven by love for me, driven by the joy and satisfaction that she finds in me, compelled by my glory, this woman has given all that she could. She has fallen down at my feet. She has wiped my feet with her hairs. The fragrance fills the room. But this beautiful picture, this beautiful picture of worship that you see in this moment, it's going to give way to betrayals and beatings and my death. These feet that she now kisses, this feet that she now holds on to, they will be driven through with a stake. You must understand that I will die in agony, that I will be betrayed by every single one of you, and my father will turn his face away as I drink down the cup of his wrath. If I satisfy my father's wrath, that you might be saved, that the beauty of this night, the wonder of this worship, the exaltation of this moment, it's going to give way to darkness you have never imagined, and this woman did what she could, and what she did was beautiful. He says more. What she has done will be remembered. The memory of this will be told everywhere the gospel is proclaimed. That this woman prepared my body for my burial because the other women aren't going to be able to do it because I won't be there. They're going to show up and want to do this thing, but I'll be risen. And then the rest of you are going to see me the way that I am. You'll see my power. You'll see my glory. You'll be wishing that you had fell down at my feet on this moment. But this woman did what she could, and it is a beautiful thing. Dear friends, I pray that you see this picture. I pray that you see this picture, and I pray in light of this picture that you understand what it is that we seek to do in this place. Not just in your quiet place, not just in your quiet moments, not just in your family worship time. Here, together, is the body. As we proclaim to the world that Jesus Christ is worth all. He is worth all. And as we sing these songs, as we offer these prayers, as we read this word, and as I preach this message to you, that the goal in all of it is Jesus Christ. It's not about any one of you. It's not about any one of these external things, that it's all about him. And as you go all in for him, that you find true satisfaction, that you find true joy, and that then you find worship is nothing more than giving expression to that joy, an expression of that satisfaction. I love nothing more. Different, I'm not asking you all to do this because this isn't the way all of you are built. But whenever somebody genuinely and sincerely in worship cannot help but let out a woo! I can't hold it in anymore. Friends, I pray that you see that that's the picture of worship. Father God, we love you and we thank you. Father, we thank you for the gift of worship. What kind of God looks down at sinful, wretched, rebellious people and says, I will give them as the chief and highest command 
that they come to me and be satisfied that I might there be glorified. We deserve no such thing and yet you've given it to us. And Father, we confess it as a people we have neglected it way, way too often. We've made worship all into a performance, all about a thing to be judged, all about a box to be checked. Father, break us of that now. By the power of your spirit, under the weight of your word, break us of that now. We're going to sing a song in a moment. Father, may this song, may this moment, may this instant, for some, be that first chance at true, Christ-exalting, self-forgetting worship. It's not about the tone. It's not about the sound of the voice. It's not about hooting and hollering. It's not about raising our voices. Father God, there are some that are going to sit on their seats with their hands in their pockets and their heads held low because that's all they can do in this moment. But Father, if they have lifted their heart before you, if they have found true satisfaction in your son, Jesus Christ, then you receive that gladly. You bless them in that. Father, help us to see that. Help us to experience that in these moments. Again, Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.